I hope you are a fan of Game 7s because we got two of them this year. The first time that's happened since 2004 and only the third time it has ever happened in Major League Baseball history. It's Game 7 ALCS, Game 7 NLCS, and now we're down to our two World Series teams. The World Series starts tonight on Fox, so let's get into our discussion of the Championship Series so that we can preview what's going to happen in these next seven days. This is Express Line 8, a recap of the American League and National League Championship Series of the 2020 Major League Baseball postseason on the Ryan Express. I am your host, Ryan Walker. Let's get into it. Well, coming into the week, I thought that we would only have maybe 11 games to talk about when I got back on Express Line 8, but instead it's 14. We got two game sevens, and we are going to start on the American League side with Tampa Bay and Houston. And the series started with Houston setting the tone early, only 10 pitches into the series. Jose Altuve got a hold of one to put Houston up one to nothing in game one. Pitching-wise, Houston also set the tone early as Framber Valdez faced the minimum nine batters through the first three innings, striking out the side in the first inning before allowing the home run to Randy Arozarena in the fourth inning that tied the game one apiece. Valdez, despite pitching pretty well, would end up taking the loss as Mike Zunino singled in Willie Adamez to give the Rays a 2-1 lead to which the Astros would be unable to score again. Really, the game was won off the arms of the Tampa Bay Rays, specifically their bullpen and Diego Castillo. In the eighth inning, Castillo came in through one pitch with the bases loaded and one out and got a double play to escape the inning. In the ninth inning, Jose Altuve left the tying run on second base, and Diego Castillo closed the game out with a five-out save. Blake Snell ended up getting the win in Game 1, even though it wasn't his best performance. Five innings, eight total base runners, six of which were hits, one run, and only two strikeouts. But it's Snell with the win, and the Rays took a one to nothing series lead. In Game 2, the Rays would only need the First inning three-run home run by Manuel Margot off Lance McCullers Jr., and the pitching would do the rest. McCullers actually pitched a terrific game. Seven innings pitched, 11 strikeouts, and four runs, three of which came off of that one big swing by Manuel Margot in the first inning. The drama in Game 2 of the series would take place in the ninth inning when the bases were loaded with no outs for Houston, with Nick Anderson pitching. After Springer grounded into a critical double play, the lead was crunched to 4-2, but back-to-back walks loaded the bases once again. It was Alex Bregman who lined out to end the game, giving the Rays a 4-2 win in Game 2 and a 2-0 series lead. In Game 3, 
the Astros would go up once again, but the game would be defined by a critical fielding error on the part of Jose Altuve in the sixth inning that led to a five-run Rays inning in which the Rays started with Randy Orozarena and batted all the way around through Orozarena and to Lowe, who ended up being the last out of the inning. In the eighth inning, the Astros would load the bases once again, but did not score thanks to relief appearance by Rays' Aaron Loop. And in the ninth inning, they would bring the tying run to the plate, but Jose Altuve would strike out and Michael Brantley would fly out to end the game. In game four, it was experience on the part of the Astros that avoided a sweep from Tampa Bay. Veteran pitcher Zach Greinke was left in by veteran manager Dusty Baker to pitch in the sixth inning with two outs and the bases loaded in a tight ball game, and it paid off. Zach Greinke got out of the inning unscathed, and the Astros went on to win by one run. In that game, Greinke struck out seven, and Yoshi Tsutsugo left the tying run on second base in the ninth inning, sealing the win for the Astros over the Rays and a 3-1 series lead for the Rays. Although Game 5 had the exact same score as Game 4, it was a totally different story from an offensive and pitching perspective as it was a solo home run parade. George Springer hit the first one in the first inning, putting Houston up 1-0. Then Brandon Lowe answered in the third inning with one of his own, tying the game at 1. In the fifth inning, Randy Rosarena hit another home run, his third of the NLCS, to right center field. That made the game 3-2 Houston. G-Man Choi tied the game in the eighth inning, a big home run for the Rays, but it was Carlos Correa who ended up closing the door on game five and making the series 3-2 with a solo walk-off home run in the bottom of the ninth inning. In Game 6, the Astros' offense from the ALDS that we saw score close to 10 runs a game finally showed up. The Astros scored 7 runs, only one of which left the ballpark. That was Kyle Tucker's solo home run. But it was a 7-run performance from the Astros' offense that boosted them to a 3-0 comeback and a Game 7 in the American League Championship Series. One win away from a second straight World Series appearance. The Astros in Game 7 trying to be the second team to ever erase a 3-0 deficit to win a seven-game series in MLB history, but it would not be so. The Rays' offense jumped on them early for three runs off Lance McCullers Jr. in the first two innings, and the Astros' offense would only be able to muster two runs for the remainder of the game. Pete Fairbanks would come in and get the final four outs and punch the Rays' tickets to the World Series in Arlington, Texas. It is the Rays' second time making the World Series. They have never won a world championship in franchise history, but they will be trying for their first here in 2020. Randy Arozarena was awarded NLCS MVP. On the National League side, things felt very similar to the American League side. The Braves jumped out to a 1-0 lead in Game 1, five pitches into the game off of a Freddie Freeman solo home run. Although Enrique Hernandez would tie the game with a solo home run in the fifth inning, 
the game would really turn into a pitcher's duel between Walker Bueller and Max Freed. Freed pitched six innings, nine strikeouts, only allowed six base runners, one of which was the solo home run. That was his only run that he allowed in the game. On the other side, Bueller pitched five innings and got seven strikeouts, but was a little out of control with five walks, but only three hits and the one run as well. In game one, the pitcher's duel between Bueller and Freed leaked into the bullpen, and Gratterall, May, and Gonzalez began dueling with Chris Martin and Will Smith. But in the ninth inning, it was Blake Trinan who lost the duel for the Dodgers, giving up three runs, and the Braves never looked back as Mark Melanson quieted the Dodgers in the bottom of the ninth inning to put the Braves up in the series one to nothing. In Game 2, the Braves looked like a more dominant offense as they scored seven runs through the first seven innings, but the Dodgers would put on one of the great comebacks in NLCS history, but it fell just short, leaving Cody Bellinger as the tying run at third base in the bottom of the ninth inning. The players of that game were Corey Seager, who was 2-for-4 with 4 RBIs, and Freddie Freeman, who was 2-for-4 with 3 RBIs. Ian Anderson also gave the Braves 4 shutout innings, allowing only 1 hit, but he did walk 5 batters. In Game 3, the Dodgers that I predicted would show up really did show up, breaking MLB records with 11 runs in the first inning, and the rest of the game is history. The Dodgers pushed the series to 2-1. to one. In Game 4, the Braves said, we can do that too, the small ball way, with six runs in the sixth inning and backed by Bryce Wilson's six innings with one run allowed, fueled the Braves to a 10-2 victory in Game 4 and pushed the Braves to be one win away from the World Series. The Braves would come out hot again, scoring two runs in two innings to start the game, but it would be the bats of Will Smith and Corey Seager driving in six runs later in the game that would propel the Dodgers to a 7-3 win. The bullpen day effort of the Dodgers ended up paying off. No pitcher pitched more than two innings, but only allowed three runs throughout the entire game. Mainly, Blake Trinan and Kenley Jansen contributed the most to the Dodgers. Blake Trinan got the win. Kenley Jansen got the save. A.J. Minter on the Braves side did terrific, pitching a career-high three innings and getting seven strikeouts. Game six was the Walker Bueller show. Six innings pitched, six strikeouts, no walks, no runs. Coupled with another Corey Seager home run, a Bellinger single, and a Justin Turner home run, the Dodgers had all they needed to win 3-1 the final score and force a Game 7 after coming back from down 3-1. Game 7 was an instant classic. In the first few innings, both offenses made the opposing starting pitcher work. Dustin May and Tony Gonsolin gave up three runs. On the other side, Ian Anderson ended up giving up two runs. Dansby Swanson put a ball on the second deck to give the Braves the two-run lead early after two innings once again. 
In the top of the fourth inning, the Braves had a 3-2 lead with Nick Markakis at the plate and a runner on second and third with no outs. Markakis lined a ball to third base. Justin Turner fielded it off the ground and then got Dansby Swanson in a rundown. After a crazy play, Swanson was tagged out on a dive by Justin Turner, who immediately threw back to third base and got the second out there. The critical double play was one of a couple defensive plays that saved the game for the Dodgers. The other play was Mookie Betts again in right field making a terrific play on a Freddie Freeman ball that surely would have been a home run. Mookie Betts robbed it and it stayed 3-2 where Enrique Hernandez could tie the game with a home run and Cody Bellinger could hit his iconic game-winning home run to send the Dodgers to the World Series. This 2020 season is the 24th National League pennant for the Los Angeles Dodgers franchise. They've only won the World Series six times, but they've been to the World Series three times in the past five seasons, the third of which is this year. And it sets up our matchup starting tonight in Arlington, Texas, between the Los Angeles Dodgers from the National League and the Tampa Bay Rays from the American League for the world title. All right, championship round is over. We've got our World Series teams. It's time to dive into all this stuff to talk about. I didn't think we'd have this much to talk about, but we do. Uh, We got seven games on the National League side, seven games on the American League side. We'll start going back to the American League side. Uh, We'll save the best for last. That Dodgers-Braves series was the best. No offense to the Rays. Don't tell the Rays that. But that Dodgers-Braves series, the 3-1 comeback, the fact that the Dodgers finished it off, and then that classic Game 7 is exactly what you're looking for in postseason baseball, and that's exactly what we got. And when you look at this ALCS and you look at the Rays, it is exactly what Kevin Cash said. It's classic Rays wins. They win these close games that are low scoring, and that's how they roll. They've got a great starting pitching rotation. They've got a great bullpen. Oh, a great stable, if you want to go with Kevin Cash's terminology here. But a great stable of guys that can throw 100 miles an hour in the bullpen out there. And the offense just gets enough done every time to give those guys a chance. The Rays are hitting 209 this postseason. That's the third lowest batting average entering the World Series. The only two that were lower are the Astros last year at 208 and the Indians in 2016 at 208. So we're seeing as time progresses in Major League Baseball, 
teams make the World Series with lower and lower batting averages. And it really puts the emphasis on pitching and defense for teams trying to reach the World Series. It feels like the Rays are batting better than 209, mainly because Randy Arozarena has been absolutely insane. Seven home runs leads Major League Baseball in home runs in the postseason, albeit he's played more games than anyone else in the postseason, but it's still a stat that stands out. He's an incredibly strong dude, and it just he feels superhuman right now. That's how the Rays offense has been kicking thanks to him, and the pitching has done their part like they have all season long. So that's kind of the story of the Rays. Their opponent, the Astros, really left a lot of opportunity out there. I knew it would be a close series because I knew how good the Rays were, and I felt like the Astros had some sort of advantage, like they have in the past few years, in the series. So I picked it to go six games. It ended up going seven, but I knew it would be a toss-up between the two teams. I think the difference with the Rays and the reason the Rays were able to quiet the Astros offense as well as they were was because of Charlie Morton, who was on that 2017 Astros team that got busted last offseason for cheating. Of course, when you're stealing signs so that a batter can hit, it doesn't so much advantage the pitcher, so you can't really hold Charlie Morton accountable for cheating because, well, what does stealing signs for your team's offense do for you except give you a better shot at getting a win? From a pitching perspective, though, Charlie Morton was great in 2017, and that experience is great for him here in 2020. That's why I knew that the Rays would win if it made it to Game 7 because they would have Morton on the mound and the Astros would have to turn to Lance McCullers Jr., who I just don't trust as much as I do Charlie Morton. So the series was either going to end in seven games and the Rays were going to win, or it was going to end in six games and the Astros were going to win. The Astros really were just one hit away from one of those first three games getting a win and winning in six games, or they were perhaps a Jose Altuve throwing error away, But either way, you felt like there was a lot of self-inflicted wounds for the Astros, especially in those first three games that ended up being the difference in the series. Untimely hits, errors, and the like was what really cost the Astros in the first three games. And as we've seen in MLB history, it's nearly impossible to come back from down 3-0. The Astros, the fact that they forced a Game 7, and that they had that momentum going into Game 7 really shows the kind of heart that Dusty Baker can instill in in his guys when he needs to. So, good season for them, even though they were subpar, and they wouldn't have made the playoffs if it wasn't for this special format. Still a good season for them. I like them to bounce back. If they can re-sign guys like George Springer and Michael Brantley, who are going to be free agents potentially at the end of this season and end up on another team. But when you look at the AL champion Tampa Bay Rays, I know what everyone's saying about the Dodgers, it being the Dodgers year, but it kind of feels like the Rays are the team to beat. They have 
the best hitter in Randy Arozarena. They have the best starting rotation with Blake Snell, Charlie Morton, Tyler Glasnow. And then they have the best bullpen when it comes to these guys that can just come in and throw absolute gas. We saw Pete Fairbanks close out the Game 7 win. We saw Nick Anderson, who has had a down postseason, but is still, in my opinion, is the best reliever in either bullpen in this World Series with the fastball, curveball, slider arsenal and the velocity that he can rear back and throw at you, it's very intimidating. The Astros got to him, but I don't expect the Dodgers to get to him as much as the Astros did, so expect him to be the most reliable reliever in the World Series here in 2020. On the other side, though, let's talk about the National League, and let's put a bow on this Brave season that has gone a lot farther than I thought it would. You know, the Braves in the first two rounds of this postseason played two teams that would not have made the playoffs if it was under a normal format. They got the Reds, who were the seventh team in the playoffs on the National League side, and then they got the Marlins, who were the sixth team in the playoffs on the National League side. So only top five go under a normal circumstance. So it's those two that they got and that was their path to the National League Championship Series. That is why I thought the Braves did not belong on the same stage as the Los Angeles Dodgers in the NLCS. That's why I thought it would be a blowout, a lamb to the slaughter view for our perspective, Uh, but it wasn't. The Braves showed up, and they came to play, and I think the biggest key for me was that the Braves got off to such a good start If you follow Atlanta, or really even the state of Georgia sports, you'd almost think that you'd want to play from behind because there is this tendency in the state of Georgia to blow big leads, which is what happened in this NLCS. No bones about it. But the Braves came in and started off 2-0, which I did not expect, and I thought it really spoke to their capabilities as a baseball club. The Dodgers had already played a series in that stadium, so the Dodgers had the advantage of knowing the confines and understanding the procedures that were going to go on. The Braves came in from Houston into a new environment, which is why I thought that the Dodgers, just from situational standpoint, would jump on the Braves first and then the Braves would be the team playing from behind. But it was the opposite. The Braves brought the game to the Dodgers right there, especially at the end of game one. That's when you kind of knew this series may not be a four or five game series. This might go six or seven. And of course, it ended up going the full length. The Braves didn't win. But the fact that they made it to a game seven in that scenario, I thought was overperforming my expectations for them. So great season for them. Obviously good things to come. Hopefully if they can get some of these guys back and keep building on what the foundation is that they've laid for this season. But when you look at how the series played out, especially how the Dodgers came back, they did it through defense. They did it through good pitching and they did it through offense. They did it in all three phases of the game. And while Cody Bellinger's game-winning home run in Game 7 
will end up being the one that goes down in the books as the play of the game. To me, it was not the play of the game. There are really three candidates for the game seven play of the game. You have the double play, the Turner, Dansby Swanson, run down, throw back to third, double play. And then you have the Mookie Betts, Rob, home run. And you have the home run by Cody Bellinger, obviously. The Bellinger home run was made possible by the Enrique Hernandez home run because without that home run, the Bellinger home run's just a tie. And while it's still a majestic shot in a huge ballpark, it doesn't mean as much when it's not the game-winning home run. So that's why I kind of cross off the Bellinger home run, even though it definitely won them the game. I cross that off as the play of the game. The next one is the double play. And... The double play, there's no way that that play was made without the dugout yelling at Turner 3-3-3 because he got up and threw to third so quickly. He had to have known while he was diving that he was going to have to get up and throw. So when he dove, he barely got Swanson. In fact, when I watched it live, I didn't think he got Swanson, and I thought that was a run that would have made it 4-4, four to four, but he did. He got him on the calf, right on the backside, just barely. But it was a diving play and then a throwback to third. And if you watch the video, there are some interesting camera angles, especially from above in brand new Globe Life Field. They've got all these nice cameras everywhere. When you're looking down at the infield, the runner at second base, Austin Riley, is actually going back to second base while Dansby Swanson is in the rundown. And right when Turner dives, he immediately breaks for third. And of course, Turner, after the dive, he kind of has to get himself situated at least and make sure he tagged the runner, make sure he gets the out call before he can spin up and throw to third because he doesn't want that run to score. And that's what made it so close. You'd think if... Austin Riley had ran to third just full steam ahead the whole time. One of two things would have happened. They either would have gotten Swan, uh, Swanson out and Riley would have been at third, or they would have had to have conceded the run to get Riley out. But what ended up happening was because he hesitated there for that moment, it allowed Turner to make the double play instead of just getting the one out at third base. And while I really considered this to be perhaps the play of the game, I ended up not choosing it as my play of the game because this happened in the fourth inning and there was a lot of baseball left. And one of the at-bats that was left in this game was the Freddie Freeman bomb to right field that got robbed by Mookie Betts. And the reason I chose this particular play was because of who was involved. It was Freddie Freeman who's been the face of the Braves franchise for the past 10 years, and it was the newcomer, free agent signee, Mookie Betts, who made the play in right field for the Dodgers. It's the guy who's been there for the Braves all 10 years, all the disappointing years they've made the playoffs and gotten bumped in the first round. It was his bat that sent that ball out to right field, and it's the new guy, the guy who's a symbol for change in the Dodgers failing to win that title despite winning all those NL West championships. He's the one who makes the play in right field. I just felt like that play was really symbolic of the matchup between the Braves and the Dodgers in the NLCS. And look, let's be honest. 
there are two newcomers, newcomers relatively, not this year, but newcomers past few years for the Braves and the Dodgers. For the Dodgers, it's Mookie Betts. He's their newcomer this year. He's their symbol of disappointment that's coming to be satisfaction very soon. He's their symbol for that. Ronald Acuna is that symbol for the Braves. He is the future of the Braves. He is the talent that's coming up for the Braves, but he's not the face of the Braves. He's not the cornerstone. It's the same thing that that Justin Turner means to Mookie Betts. Betts is the symbol for change in the Dodgers. Turner is the cornerstone. He's the guy who's driven in more postseason runs than any other player in the history of Major League Baseball. Similarly, Acuna is the face of the future Braves, but Freeman is the face of the past and current Braves. And I mean, look, when you live in Auburn, Alabama, you live right down the road from Atlanta, and it's really Braves country through here. We aren't really close to anyone else. We aren't close to Tampa. We aren't close to Cincinnati. We aren't really close to Dallas either. It's all Braves through here. If anyone's a baseball fan and isn't bandwagoning on one of the big teams like the Dodgers, the Red Sox, the Yankees, or someone like that, it's the Braves. And when you send out a tweet that's controversial about the Braves and one person disagrees with it, all these people come out of the woodworks because that's how the network works down here. The Braves this year had a bit of an identity issue. Their MVP, the guy who has fueled this whole run, the guy who has come up in the clutch, is Freddie Freeman. Last year, it was Acuna. But it's not Acuna this year. In fact, Acuna was 0 for 13 in late and close situations in the regular season with no RBIs. He got his first RBI in a late and close situation in game six of the NLCS. And it didn't matter because the Dodgers had the game won by that point. Pretty much. I mean, he doubled in a run to make it 3-1. to but it wasn't going to be a comeback on the part of the Braves at that point. Freeman, on the other hand, he was the one who delivered the walk-off that was the first playoff game win in this postseason run for the Braves. He was the one that delivered the walk-off in the 13th inning against the Reds, a very key victory because if they lose that game, they're playing game three against Sonny Gray, and I'm not really sure how good I would have felt about Sonny Gray versus Kyle Wright. Look, Freddie Freeman, in comparison to Ronald Acuna in the clutch, in late and close situations, he got on base at a 514 number and slugged 565 he drove in five runs and in that time he struck out half as much as Ronald Acuna did despite the fact that he had 10 more at bats than Acuna did so when I say the Braves have an identity issue I don't necessarily mean the team the Braves because the Braves understand that their lineup is very top-heavy and that their runs are going to be produced by the top five batters in their lineup. And they also know that they have some very young, talented pitchers that can perform on a big stage. 
the team itself understood its identity. Who didn't understand the identity were the fans and the marketing program for the Braves this year who decided to market Ronald Acuna Jr. as Michael Jordan despite the fact that one of his teammates is going to win NL MVP this year and one of his teammates was the reason they won the first playoff series versus the Cincinnati Reds and ultimately could have given them a tying home run in Game 7 but got it robbed by Mookie Betts. So it's a bit of an identity issue from a fan standpoint the tweet was not a dig at Ronald Acuna Jr. I think he's going to be a great player in the future. And yes, I think he does it the right way. He's been in a couple fights with the Marlins, but we're just going to put that one on the shelf. Uh, Freddie has never been in a fight before, really. Uh, he's been ejected once when he broke his bat after a strikeout. He was in a slump, but it was never it was never addressed towards someone else like the Marlins. It was more of frustration about himself. So we can argue this person brings the right attitude, this person doesn't bring the right attitude, whatever. We never really know because we aren't in the clubhouse. All we can really look at is statistics. And I'm telling you, statistically speaking, Ronald Acuna Jr. is fourth and fifth in a lot of categories for the Braves this year. He's not their Michael Jordan. He's not the guy you want taking the last shot. The last shot is Freddie Freeman, and the Braves' last shot was that home run in Game 7 that got robbed. That's why that's my play of the game. That's a wrap on the Braves. And as far as the Dodgers go, talent all the way through. I like this matchup in the World Series. Despite the fact that we let 16 teams into the playoffs this year, we got the top two teams. If we had packed it up at the end of 60 games and said the number one team on each side is going to play for the World Series, we would have saved us a lot of time going through the other 14 teams that have been eliminated up to this point. So I really like the fact that we got the two best teams in the World Series. I have to stick with my initial pick, the Dodgers, because I don't want to blow my perfect streak of getting world champions correct after the conclusion of the division series, which is picking out of four teams, of course, makes it a lot easier, but still three for three on that, looking to go four for four. So that is a wrap on the championship series, World Series coming up tonight on Fox. Uh, every night that there is baseball, it will be on Fox and Joe Buck will be on the call. Hopefully we get seven more games because, man, last week was really fun. And after we get a team that will be within one of clinching, we will have our World Series episode here on the Ryan Express. Otherwise, take care. Thanks for listening, and we will see you all after some World Series games. 